Hi, welcome to the Urban Lifestyle Report, and I'm your host, Carolyn Morris Walker. To this episode of My Legacy Project, the Urban Lifestyle Report podcast, and I'm your host, Carolyn Morris-Walker. I'm ecstatic to have Dwayne Morgan, an international renowned spoken word poet, writer, producer, public speaker, and also known as a social entrepreneur, as my guest who without doubt exemplifies Blacknificence and Black excellence. Urban Lifestyle Report is a place and space to showcase the many talents of Black and African people who are often invisible, not acknowledged, and not celebrated in popular media for their talents, accomplishments, and achievements that contributes positively to the community and often to the world at large. So I'm thrilled when I meet people in my community who are doing outstanding and amazing work in a plethora of areas as educators, creators, influencers, game changers, entrepreneurs, inventors, artists, founders who are igniting and building and transforming our community in a variety of ways and in so many arenas. They are engaging in these activities on a full-time, part-time, or as a side hustle and making their passions and visions come to life. I believe the community needs to hear about you. Dwayne is a highly accomplished artist. I'm just going to go through a few of Dwayne's accomplishments. He has so many, and why may I tell you, plenty of them. He is a two-time Canadian National Poetry Slam champion. In 1994, he founded Up From The Roots Entertainment that promotes positive artistic contributions of African Canadians and urban influenced artists. In 2019, he also founded and produced the inaugural Toronto Spoken Soul Festival. In 2013, he was inducted into the Scarborough Walk of Fame. Now, I know that sounds like plenty already, but I have more for you. He has published 12 books. Wow. And Dwayne has performed for some notables such as the former Governor General of Canada, the Honorable Michelle Jean, Jack Layton, the late leader of the NDP party, and recently in January, and I was there to see this, he opened for President Barack Obama. So Dwayne, Blacknificence, Black Excellence, indeed. And I think I've said enough at this point, so I think it's time we heard from you. Could you tell us or share with us how did spoken word poetry come to you? What was the genesis that took you to take this path? I mean, it's very interesting because 
I would never have chosen this path for myself. Uh, growing up, I was not one who was into writing and, and storytelling. So it, it seems rather unlikely, but as they say, there are no coincidences in life. Things are destined to, to be. So when I was in high school, around my final year of high school, I was producing a talent show for Black History Month. And um, I had so many friends who were extremely talented, whether in singing, dance, hip hop, just you name it. And all of them were gearing up to perform in the show. And then I realized that people were going to come watch the show and they were going to watch all my friends on stage. And no one would really know that I was the person who pulled it all together. So I wanted to figure out how I could get on stage and be on stage with the rest of my friends who actually had talent. And I decided that the only real option that you have when you have no talent is maybe try to write a poem. So I wrote a poem to get on stage with my friends. And that poem, in essence, changed my life and changed everything that was happening um, in my life from that point and has led me to where I'm at today. Do you remember the poem? Uh, I don't remember exactly how it goes. I know it was called In Search of the True Brother, and it was looking at what it's kind of what it's like being a young black male at that time. So it was, um, I do remember that's what it was called. I just, I don't remember the actual lyrics to, to oh, it. That's okay, because we're big people now, so memory's not so good as it used to be, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and then... How did you start moving forward and doing more in the area of um, spoken word poetry? Well, I realized that there were very few options for young people at the time, especially young people of color. So I decided to start my own business. This was still when I was in high school and I started Up From The Roots Entertainment. And wow. the uh, idea was to create space for other young people to be able to get on stage and perform. So I started off putting on talent shows at anywhere that would uh, allow us as young people to, to be in there, which was also a challenge because when you tell people you're going to bring, you know, a couple hundred young black kids to their, their venue, there's not a lot of people are that interested in us being there. So to learn how to, to navigate um, certain things, how to deal with people who, who own venues and that sort of thing, how to get, other young people to behave themselves when they when they come out so that we can get back into certain places. So I mean, it was a very much uh, learn on the go kind of kind of process. And as I was doing that, and as I was putting on these events, I, you know, always wanted to make sure that I had some new poems to perform in all of these events. So uh, starting the business also fueled my my writing career because I needed to make sure that I always had something new for all of the events that I was producing. What was the conversation like when you're, you said to your parents, oh, by the way, I'm going to start a spoken word poetry business. Um, how did your parents feel about that? Seeing that you were still in high school and, you know, West Indian people are caught up with getting the good job. Mm -hmm. So how did that conversation go? Um, I mean, they, they weren't necessarily uh, very supportive of the idea at the same time they didn't really understand what the idea was 
so I mean, I, I went to school, I went to York University, I, I graduated with uh, honors degrees in mass communications and sociology. And while I was there, I was still working on the business. And instead of taking a job when I came out, I decided that I was just going to do my own thing and work for myself. You know, at first, again, they still wanted to know when I was going to get uh, a real job. A real job. <laughs> That I do, you know, how is it that I went to university and now I came out and I don't have a job, what's going on? Then eventually, as I was doing more and more stuff, there would be, you know, articles about me, Toronto Star or The Sun or in the, the local Caribbean papers. And, you know, their friends would, would come to work and be like, hey, isn't this your son? And then, of course, am I you that, you know, so. Am I son, yes. You know, the, the discussion when they actually saw that I was actually doing something positive, something that people were, were recognizing as worthwhile. And then they actually started to come out to, you know, a number of my events and stuff like that. So it was a, it was a journey. Definitely the support wasn't there at the very beginning, but um, it came around in the end. That's awesome. Glad to hear it. Because sometimes, you know, in, in the Caribbean community or even the Black community, we have a very clear idea about our children going on, getting higher education, getting the good job. And mm -hmm. so, you know, when your children are coming at you and saying they're going to take, take a creative path, there is a moment of apprehension rather than support. But you prove them that, boy, you could make this go on still doing yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, um, I can't fault them necessarily for that. I mean, you, you come to this country and, and that's kind of the, you know, the benchmark for success. Um, you don't really, you know, growing up in Jamaica, you don't really see the arts as a viable option. So they're the frame of reference for them to say, okay, yes, this is a, a viable option. And really there wasn't anyone else that I saw who was doing what I wanted to do. So even I didn't have a frame of reference. I had to just go and, you know, and figure it out. So, you know, every, every year I go back to, um, Jamaica, my sister and I, uh, have a, a project where we bring school supplies to kids in St. Thomas, Jamaica every year where my mother and, and my grandparents uh, grew up. And I think one of the things that's really special for me is that after I um, I did the Barack Obama thing back in, in January, uh, my mother wanted to attend, but she spends the, the winters in Jamaica now. So I sent her a picture uh, that I have of, of Barack and I, and it was through the, through the phone, through WhatsApp, I could tell the pride that she had in this, uh, in this picture. And I, and I thought of it. And when I go back there, she's still in this rural place there on Wednesday, there's no water on Wednesdays. So you have to collect stuff in a bucket and stuff to, to get through Wednesday. Cause there's no, you know, water and, and this sort of thing. So, you know, to grow up in that environment, to leave to come here to have a child and that child ends up meeting and performing and sharing the stage with the first black president in the United States. Like what, what does that feel like? It's such a, a special thing for me, even though she wasn't there to know the pride of the sacrifices that were made, um, you know, to leave everything behind, to come to a new country, to start over again, and to see that I've been able to do things with my life that make those sacrifices make sense. Uh, I totally feel you. I was so prideful seeing you up there myself. I was like, this is the bomb. I've been a, a big fan of yours for a long time from when you used to do events down at train mm -hmm. studios on Bathurst Street, your poetry slams. I think you used to do something on College Street. Was it Revival? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we do. Used to be used yeah. to be Revival as well. Yeah. 
Now I used to come down to revival. One year, I'm going to share a story. I was at work one, I used to work in marketing and sales, and I was working over the Christmas holidays. And I think it was a when Sister Speak event was happening, and you had put out a post that the first person who gets back to you would get two free tickets. And I'm glad to say I was that person. <laughs> awesome. And, And that was a while ago, a long, long time ago. What this brings to mind, um, you spoke about your mom living in St. Thomas, Jamaica. And I've been to St. Thomas, Jamaica with my dad uh, to Yellas. And that was one of the first trips me and my father took to Jamaica. And I have a very strong bond with my dad. I tell people I date my parents all the time. Uh, my dad will be 91 in the next few weeks. And yeah, he's my guy. And this brings me to your one of your books called Fairy Tales, mm-hmm. uh, which was one of your children's books. And uh, you performed this poem with your daughter. And I was beautiful, beautiful. What came to mind, um, one of the lines that I that is said in the poem, it says, we socialize girls to find their prince charming while never teaching boys to be charming. That's very powerful. And I see this really as a girl empowerment kind of line that this is something that girls and women should hear. And I wanted to understand um, your perspective on this poem and how it impacts on your relationship with your daughter. Uh, Well, I mean, the the poem itself comes out of the relationship with my daughter it comes out of so many uh, books, stories, movies that that you see that have this narrative of Prince coming and, and saving the day. And, you know, that's so outdated. Uh, it's so limiting in terms of the ability that girls have to imagine what their future could look like. And, you know, today, even when I do like, you know, when sisters speak and stuff, there are, are men who say, oh, why am I going to come and just hear a bunch of poems about women bashing men? And they just have this idea that a woman's life revolves around men, that the only thing that women have to speak about is somehow tied to men. And I think unless you begin attacking that from a very young age, nothing really changes. And I do a lot of work in in schools. And so when I go into schools, it's amazing to see the expression on these young girls' faces when they hear uh, a male saying these things to them. And they're, you know, they're looking around at each other like, oh, okay, you know what? Somebody gets it. And I think it, it was really important for me as a man, as a father, to be able to create something that speaks to that reality, that challenges um, men, that challenges young boys in terms of how we think, how we um, treat women, just the the privileges that we have simply based on gender. And so for me, it was really important to create um, this piece of work. And the moment I did it, my daughter absolutely loved it. She started to memorize it. And then, you know, so now we perform it together. If we're, if we're in the same space and that, that's a poem that's going to happen, then we call her up on stage and we do it together. It's a beautiful poem and it's funny as well, but the underlying basis of the poem is very serious. And, and, mm-hmm. I, and I think it speaks to, again, that role of women is perpetuated 
from the time we're little girls, we learn how to cook and we are, you know, relegated to women's work and, uh, and, and the goal. I remember being in university and them speaking about, oh, I'm going to university to get my MRS, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Rather than the whole idea of getting an education to go out and find a job and to be self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that this is a girl empowerment poem. Every little girl needs to be hearing this every year on her birthday or something. It should be a part of a of, of, of celebration for her. And uh, I know that you also performed this year with your daughter at a Black History uh, Month event. Can you talk a little bit about that? So that was an event that, um, as part of the Harborfront Center's 25-year anniversary, and the, the premise of the show was that Every artist, uh, it was a dance show, but all of the dancers were going to be paired with another art form. So when they spoke to me about it, I said, all right, well, why not have my daughter be the dancer and we'll pair her with my poetry? And they they loved the idea. It was a, an awesome opportunity to actually work with my daughter. Frustrating at, at times. Um, but we put together a, a, a very solid 15-minute performance that intertwined her dancing and my poetry. And it was, it was just really powerful, you know, speaking with people afterwards about what they took from, from the performance because we hit on, you know, so many topics that were, you know, relevant to, to men, to male privilege, to, to girls, to, to women's empowerment. And we packed so much into these 15 minutes and, you know, she felt such a a sense of accomplishment. And it was one of the first times she's ever really done a show that was that professional where, you know, you had to go and there's a sound and lighting technician and, okay, you have to make sure you're standing in this place because the light's going to go up and you have to be there. And so it was a great learning experience, you know, for her and to be able to share that, both of us to be able to share that with each other was awesome. I think the only unfortunate thing was that there was only one show and um, right. even, though, even though it was sold out, it would have been great for more people to get to see um, what we had put together. Uh, do you think it could become a part of your production, uh, Dwayne Morgan and daughter performance? Um, I mean, it's it's possible. Well, I mean, we'll have to see how it goes. I mean, there if I was to do something again where I had the same technical things because I I made sure in planning it, I knew how I wanted it to look. I knew how I wanted the lights to be. So if I ever have a venue where I have access to all of those things, then I could definitely recreate it in the way that I imagined it. You know, once, once I knew it was at, at, at Harborfront, I knew the, the level that I could imagine at. So I created something based on outside of the box, outside of what people are used to seeing from me, because I knew you know, what I had at my disposal. So in another situation, if I have those things at my disposal again, then it might be something that I'm able to recreate. Awesome. Looking forward to it. I'll be there. Two of my favorite events, and you did speak to um, them briefly, um, was uh, When Sisters Speak mm-hmm. and uh, When Brothers Speak. Just curious about how did those uh, events come together? What were the steps? What were the influences that made that those events come together? Because they're so powerful. 
And mm-hmm. I know when I go to when brothers speak, I'm taken aback by hearing the experience of a black man from his voice, from his experience. That to me is very powerful rather than somebody trying to tell us what that's about. Mm-hmm. And of course, when sisters speak, I'm a woman, so I can relate to all that the ladies are talking about mm-hmm. up there. So what was the genesis around there? The first thing was um, there was a poetry slam event that was happening in Philadelphia. And at the time, I had no idea what a poetry slam was. Uh, but I've always been very curious, so I needed to figure out what it was. So I borrowed my mother's um, van and got some friends, and we did a road trip to Philadelphia so I could figure out what this thing was that was just in a random email that I received one day. And I met so many amazing poets at this event, poets that I thought would really resonate with people in Toronto, but there was no way to get them to Toronto. Uh, So once I returned, I had to figure out what I could do to get some of these poets to Toronto, and I decided to create When Brothers Speak. And When Brothers Speak is just a poetry showcase of all Black men uh, poets. And the first time we did it, we had over 400 people showed up. It was in this small place. It was so hot in there. It was well And we didn't care. It's, as people showed up, we just kept letting people in because we didn't. I had no clue this many people were going to show up. It started something. I didn't even expect it was going to be, you know, an annual thing. It was just this one thing that I was going to try to do. But so many people came out. The feedback was so um, positive that I had to then keep it going. Uh, you know, a couple of years after that, I, I figured that, you know, after the success of When Brothers Speak, somebody would have copied me and and created When Sisters Speak, and nobody did. And I said, well, if nobody else is going to do it, then I'll do it. And so then I created When Sisters Speak. And now both of them have been around for two decades. You know, it's, it's, I I didn't expect to be doing them. And, but here we are. Very powerful events. My friend and I, Christine, went to both your events last year, and we were just like in awe. Powerful, powerful. And it's so nice to see everybody really dressed up. Like, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal. So I, yeah, tick, tick. Um, I always say I'm like City TV. I'm everywhere. Mm-hmm. And your events are certainly in one of my everywhere places to go. How long have you been in, uh, how long have you been a spoken word poet? How long have you been uh, doing this? This year is 27 years. Why? Long time doing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a journey. It's and uh, a journey that continues. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, uh, in 2013, you also wrote uh, a book called "Everyday Excellence," which mm-hmm. became a series. It's about lessons you've learned and how they can be applied to anyone seeking more out of life. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? So yeah, so everyday excellence, um, you know, every five years, I try to do something significant for the every five anniversary. So that came out as part of my 20th anniversary. And, you know, a lot of times people would ask me, how is it possible that you've just lived off of art for 20 years? So I decided I was going to write a book that looked at my philosophies, how I live life, how I treat people, how I think about certain things. And it was really just about 
you know, a lot of life lessons and how they correlate to things that have, have happened to me and things that I've experienced throughout my career. And again, it was amazing to see how people gravitated to, you know, what I was trying to share in the book. Today, there's, um, there's a school in, uh, in Whitby that teaches the book to their grade 11 students. Oh, wow. Um, there's a, the Durham District School Board this last school year used the book for a pilot project with Black kids to help them think about being excellent, to help them think about what are some of the skills I need to actually do better. So that was that was interesting because there there was three elementary schools and three high schools that were chosen to be parts of this pilot project of, of using uh, my Everyday Excellence book to to aid in student achievement. Yeah, it's been really, really amazing to just kind of see how people have have taken to it um, and the messages in it. And it's really just about, you know, things like being being present, you know, like we spend right. so much time not present. But, and, and, you know, in, in a lot of the chapters at the end, there's a little um, task or activity that people have to do. So, you know, one of them is, you know, just text five people and tell them that you love them. Just five random people. Just just do it because we don't often do this unless, you know, somebody gets sick or we hear that somebody's dying or something. Then we decide, oh yeah, I love you. Let's make this a part of our regular thing. I say, if, if you switch out the I love you every day, just pick a different five people and send one sentence of positivity. You're on your phone anyway. Right? So why not just pick five random people, not the same people you talk to every day, five random people and just send them something positive. You have no idea whose life you might save that day simply by doing something that is that simple. Um, You know, there's an activity that says, you know, when you come back from Tim Hortons, describe the person that served you because sometimes we're so caught up in getting our coffee that we have no idea what the person looks like who took the order. We're not even present enough to honor the humanity of the person just across from us. It's really a matter of just getting back to being present, being human, honoring the humanity and the people who are around us and, and those kinds of, of values. And it's, it's one of the things that I do at the school that teaches the book is that every semester I surprise the students by just showing up in their class one day. And awesome. just talking to them about the book and asking them any questions that they might have. And they're usually totally shocked that I'm in their, in their classroom. And there's so many young people who are like, I hate to read, but I, I love the book. Because it's, it's written in a way that is very accessible. It's not academic. It's just, very, hey, it's like how we're, you and I are talking right now. That's how the book is written. So anybody, my daughter picked it up. And, and read it. like So anybody could pick it up, read it, and get the meaning out of it. And that's always been something very important to me, even with my poetry, is to ensure that people get it. And right. it doesn't go over people's heads, and it's not so complicated that you, know, you sit there and you feel like you're stupid because you didn't figure it out. I just want you to, this is the story, here it is, plain as day, do what you want with it. Now, when you wrote the book, though, you wrote it for a greater audience, and now it's become part of um, the the school curriculum. What was that process? How did the book become a part of high school and and, and your students? What was that about? Because I'm thinking that when you wrote the book, that was not the audience that it was written specifically for, but somehow it got into that direction. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It wasn't it wasn't the audience that I was necessarily thinking of, but a lot of times I just create books, and you know, they they're gonna find their audience. And with that one, um, I do a lot of work, as I mentioned, in in schools, uh, both high school, elementary. And I was in a meeting with um, some teachers, and they were just talking about these old books that you know they're kind of being forced to to have kids read that are kind of outdated, and the kids don't like them and I suggested to one of the teachers, hey, you know what, you should, you know, check out this book that I have. I sent her a copy of it and then she read it and she messaged me back and she said, you know, I know that you wanted me to consider this book for the kids, but I needed to read this book. The stuff that you said resonated with me, so I'm going to champion this book. And that teacher took it upon herself to, you know, go to the principal and say, hey, we need to teach this book. And She's been teaching it, and then eventually after two years, she brought on another teacher, so now he's teaching it. Now they have three teachers at that school who are teaching it. Um, She helped me create a a teacher's guide to help teachers to teach the book. Everywhere she goes, she she mentions the book. She started an everyday excellence after-school group at her school. Wow. So, I mean, you never know who the work is going to reach. And, um, you know, there are some people who just connect to it and they just it just takes on a life by itself so she has single-handedly done so much for me and and so much for that particular piece of work and that's why like she didn't have to do any of that and that's why you know I just show up at the school when I know that they're teaching the book and hang out with the kids and I don't ask for any money I don't ask for anything I just go and do it because she didn't have to do any of the things that she did and I just always believe in in reciprocity and always just giving back as much as possible. Exactly, and I also like the idea that when you show up in the school uh, for the students, how exciting that must be for them to say, "Here's the guy who wrote this." And I would also think that um, seeing a black man show up, that must be a very positive point and for the students a memorable point that also you're a black man doing this you wrote this you're the one that that this course is based on and and how powerful that must be because you know I spoke about when I was in high school I had one uh, Jamaican black teacher Mrs. Hart she was my math teacher and she never joked she was serious serious Mrs. Hart and she left an indelible impact on my memory of being a black teacher in high school because I believe she was my only black teacher in high school when I came to Canada. Mm -hmm. And that's so important. I mean, I never had a black teacher until I got to university. and, And so I understand definitely the importance of that. And that's one of the reasons why I spend so much time going to schools because I, I understand what it means to have someone who looks like you as the center of attention. Um, and it's, you know, when I go to schools and I go to speak in, in schools, I don't, I don't do the, the suit and tie thing. I, I look like the students when, you know, especially for the young black men, when they realize that you can be yourself and look like yourself and speak like yourself and, and be accepted for who you are, it, it goes beyond what I'm actually there to speak about. And I think that's something that's that's very important. And I meet people all the time now who are adults who, you know, remember I came to their school when they were in elementary school. 
Um, and I think that's, that's so amazing to me. That's a long lasting impact. And you remember, what have been some of the challenges, if any challenges, in being a spoken word poet during your 20 plus years? I mean, there are, there are always challenges. My job is to make it seem like they don't exist. But, Reality check. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, really, money has always been the, um, the first one. I have expensive ideas that don't necessarily correlate with the amount of disposable income that I have to create them. You know, sometimes it's like, where do you find the money to fund the things that you, you know, want to do is always a, a big thing. I say this one all the time because we live in a in a society today that where you're only as relevant as your last hit. People always want what's new, what's popular, what's hot. So this becomes very difficult whether you're a singer or anything like this because the older you get, you feel like your your time is running out. And in the black community, we aren't always as supportive of our artists as they age. Whereas right. if the Rolling Stones say they're going on tour, that tour is sold out within the first, doesn't matter where they're going, everywhere it's sold out. If Rod Stewart is going, sold out. Any any of them, they, right. they, they work there, their artists in a way that we don't necessarily do that. And this becomes problematic because now if we look at a lot of the music that our young people listen to, a lot of these artists know, hey, I have a five-year window. So right. I need to just say as much as I can, do whatever I can, whatever's popular, whatever's trendy, because after five years, you're not going to care about me. So I have to get as much money right now in these five years. Your mindset is very different if you know you have 50 years. And with those 50 years, there's so many different things that you can do. So for me, how do you stay relevant 27 years later when there's somebody who's now doing it two, three years, you know, they're, they're the new hot name and all that kind of stuff. How do you still stay relevant? Because people are like, oh yeah, we know Dwayne Morgan. Yeah, he's been here, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But you still have to fight for your place and fight for the respect that, that you deserve in a society that is very disposable uh, when it comes to arts and and creative. So even if you look at things that happen to, you know, like with a Whitney Houston and stuff like that, when you're no longer making hit songs, doesn't matter if you're the greatest singer to ever live. Everyone says, yeah, but what, when was your last hit? And if you don't have an answer, then you start feeling less than and all sorts of other things start to happen, right? You, you, you feel unworthy, your life starts to fall apart, all of these different things. So it's, it's a very difficult thing to navigate the arts especially within the Black community, because we haven't always done a great job of revering those who have stood the test of time. Which is interesting that you say that because, for instance, Barris Hammond is a iconic reggae singer. He's been in the game for a long time. I think my parents grew up listening to Barris and Next Generation Me. I, I, I go to Barris Hammond every year. My, you know, my friend's husband said, but didn't you see him last year? Mm -hmm. It no matter. I'm going every mm -hmm. year. And when you speak about staying relevant, what do you think it is? Like, what is it 
that we can do to ensure that you are relevant? Do you have any suggestions for that? Well, I mean, the thing with Barris Hammond is that he's still making music and he's still right. making good music. He's still making relevant music. He's still making music that, that hits the charts, that speaks to the Jamaican people. Yeah, but he only sings the old tunes. He never sings any of the newest music. Every dance you go to is all the old tunes. And I am shocked by that because I agree with you. He is making new music, but that's not what people are. When you go to a Barris Hammers concert and dance, them not playing a new tune, a Barris. Them are playing all the ones the we class. know. Yeah. But I think the, the, the fact that he's creating new music allows him to go on tour. Okay. If he wasn't creating new music, nobody would care. He'd right. be like, oh, yeah, here's that old guy. And he would be like, you know, some of the other people where once in a blue moon, they might show up. But Barris is here every year because he always has some new song. And even if he comes and doesn't sing it, he's still going to come because he's still relevant. He's still in the conversation. So right. I think, again, we're in this situation where you have to maintain your place in the conversation for right. people to recognize that you're still there, you're still alive, you're not dead, because, you know, everybody's just looking for who is who is the latest, who is the newest, who's who's the new Barris Hammond? You know, they're like, oh, yeah, man, Barris has been around from time. Who's the new Barris? So everybody's always looking for the new version, and I think... The way Barris Hammond is supported, we need more people supporting our artists in that kind of way so that you know, as you get older, you still have a career. Uh, it's right. hard even now for you know someone like Jay-Z to go on tour and like, oh, who wants to see this old guy rapping? <laughs> Jay-Z is one of the most successful rappers of all time. Everybody should want to see that old guy rapping. But the reality is, ah, nah, that hip-hop stuff, that's a young people's thing. So that means he no longer has that opportunity to make that set of money because nobody cares. Nobody wants to see him. Nobody wants to hear those songs because they rather hear Drake. Now he tours with Beyonce. Well, hey, you know what? My wife is more relevant than I am, even though I'm the most successful person to ever do the genre that I'm in. But hey, this is what it is. We have to do a much better job at supporting our artists who are still living, working, still able to travel, to tour, and still support the younger generation that's coming up, but make sure that our older generation is also supported because then you can avoid what we see now where we have a disposable culture of people just making music for the moment, really trying to make a classic. No one's trying to make something that lives for years because I might not have a career in five years. It's we're right now in now, 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 now. I got to make right. this money, make this money now because by two years, you're not going to care about me. And I think it's, that's really problematic. It's funny. I had never been to a Jay-Z concert and I went to a Jay-Z concert. And to date, it was one of the best concerts I have ever been to. No bells, no whistles, him, a little backdrop stage. I had a newfounded respect for Jay-Z. Let's talk about President Obama opening January 2020, which 
I got to go. I got a ticket for free and it was my birthday weekend. So I was absolutely delighted. Mm -hmm. And then you were there performing. Tell us about you get the call and how did the call happen? What was, what was involved in that? Um, well, I mean, the call actually wasn't a call. It, it messaged me in my, on Instagram and it was a very secretive message asking if I was available on a certain date and if I'd be interested in doing a secret performance. And I was like, well, I'm free on the day. So sure. No problem. They wanted me to work with younger artists as well. So I reached out to a couple of younger artists who, even though I didn't have many details, they're like, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll do it. And so when I confirmed that all the pieces were in place, they said, all right, so here's the deal. Barack Obama is coming and we want you to open up the, the event. Yeah, I was totally ecstatic. I was floored. I didn't think that this is what it was. I told the other two and they were equally as ecstatic. And yeah, we just got down to, to business. We're like, all right, this is this is a big deal. So we're going to have to create something that, you know, is is memorable. We're going to have to create something that that stretches us. You know, the three of us, we had, we had never written together before. We had never performed together before. So this there was a lot of new things that were going to happen in relatively a short amount of time because we were asked to do this at some point in December. As you said, it happened in January one of the artists spent December in in Ghana, so we had to wait for him to come back before we actually really got down to work. So there was there was a lot that was involved in making it happen. And could you tell us the name of the other two artists who performed with you? Right. So it was uh, Randella J and Thunderclaw Robinson. Those were the, the, the two young men who were a part of the performance uh, with me. And we put, um, you know, we sat together for about five hours just to write this three-minute poem. And then we spent another five hours just figuring out how to uh, how we wanted to perform it and present it to the audience. Thank you. Thank you. You guys were awesome. I'll share some of the pictures on my Instagram when I put this podcast up. Words of encouragement to someone who has a vision, has a dream, has an idea. What would you say to them? Words of encouragement. Well, I mean, I always say that dreams without work are just a waste of time. Your your brain is move, moving and acting for, for no reason. So you, you want to make sure that whatever dreams, goals you have, there's an action plan that goes with them. And saying that you're going to do it tomorrow isn't an action uh, or an action plan. Uh, the... The reality is that, and, and the thing that we all forget is as human beings, we take time and we take life for granted. We all believe that we're going to be here. Every human be being believes that they're going to see tomorrow. So we just don't do the things that we could do, should do, need to do today because we've convinced ourselves that this tomorrow exists and is promised to us. And I think that no matter who you are, no matter what it is that you want to do, just get to work. Today is all that you got. This is, this is it. This is your moment. This is your chance to do it and just go out there and do it. I mean, if, if we even take, you know, this podcast as an example, I mean, how many months have we been saying, okay, we've got to do this podcast. And then eventually you're just like, all right, let's get this done. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what it is. You just got to say, I'm going to do it. Otherwise you can talk yourself out of it. You can rationalize yourself out of it. You can procrastinate yourself out of it. You have to make the decision that I am going to do it and then 
put it into action. Make an action plan, put the pieces together, and just do it. Forget about tomorrow. Tomorrow's a fairy tale. All that you got is the moment that you're living in, so make it count. Right. So GSD, get stuff done. Absolutely. Period. Yes, absolutely. How would people get in touch with you, Dwayne? What's your contact information? How would people get in touch with you? All right. So my website is DwayneMorgan.ca. On social media, it's Dwayne underscore Morgan, and that's D-W-A-Y-N-E. And if any of that fails, you just go in Google or whatever, and you put in Dwayne Morgan and poet or poetry, and all of my stuff comes up. Oh, there's so many things. The Scarborough Walk of Fame. uh, There's so many things. There might have to be a part two, Dwayne. Ain't no problem. You know how to find me. Right. Thank you so much, Dwayne Morgan, spoken word poet extraordinaire, entrepreneur extraordinaire. I wanted to talk about social entrepreneurship. We're definitely going to have to do a part two because that was a a piece that I really wanted to get your take on. You certainly are Blacknificence and Black Excellence. And I appreciate you uh, doing this with me, my legacy project, which 18 months in the making, but seven episodes. Hello. I'm moving. I'm doing it. I'm your host. Carolyn Morris Walker, and I'm looking forward to sharing my next episode with you with another awesome guest. Thank you for joining me at the Urban Lifestyle Report, a platform to exemplify Blacknificence and Black excellence in our community.